With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is Thursday, August 1st of 2013, and tonight our guest is Audrey Kishline, and she will be telling us a little bit about moderation management and how she left, what happened since then. Uh, before we bring her on, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is, well, it's, She's known to a lot of people as Audrey Kishline. That's her married name, her, her former married name. Um, she's going by her maiden name again, which is Audrey Kahn, so you might find her under that name. She's with us right now. We're going to bring her on. How are you doing this evening, Audrey? I'm doing fine, Ken, and thank you for inviting me to be on your radio blog. <laughs> I haven't been on a radio blog. This is new for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I am definitely Audrey Kahn, and I really like that name because my – Middle initials B, and so my initials are A, B, C, which reminds me to continually keep things simple and to the basics, which I have been known to complicate things beyond belief. So I really like to remember my initials to stay on track. Okay. Well, so my, uh, my latest book, which is Face to Face, which I've done a second edition of, is co-authored by myself, Audrey Kahn, as well as, well as Cheryl Malloy that speaks to the uh, horrible tragedy that I caused back in the year 2000. Okay. Um, you started... Uh, one, one other thing I wanted to say is I want to compliment you, Ken, very much on your article in the fix, First Do No Harm. Uh, it was very well written, and I really enjoy, you know, your concept. You know, basically, reducing any harm is, is better than not reducing harm. And so you go from the complete gamut of harm reduction to complete abstinence. And I, I think that's a really interesting and, and great program that you have. Well, I, you know, I kind of think that's the way it has to be done. Um, I can't take a lot of credit for uh, the innovation because this is really developed through needle exchange programs, through trial and error through decades, and it just really hadn't been applied to alcohol before. So the the only thing I can really take credit for doing is applying some really successful, uh, time-proven, time-worn concepts that yeah. were discovered for drug users in needle exchange and taking them, bringing them to alcohol. And you know, it's it's interesting. You know, the two groups, uh, drinkers and drug users, often they don't they don't talk a lot. It's like you know. The, the heroin users kind of feel like they're better than the drunks in a way, and the drunks feel better than the heroin users, and it's like, we can, we're not going to talk to you. Um, well, I find, you know, uh, that harm reduction actually in alcohol has been around for a number of years, but, um, you know, for example, I, there were uh, several programs that were started before I began moderation management, 
And when I did, of course, I had to have two M's, you know, like AA has two A's, so I had to have MM. But the, yeah, and I wrote the text for for the self-help group. Um, Basically, moderation programs had been tried before and to varying degrees of success. However, they are not, uh, nobody from the court systems or other, you know, parole, et cetera, work releases, judges don't tend to send people to moderation programs versus abstinence programs because, as we all know, total abstinence is the safest route to go. Well, I don't uh, know if it's so much that. Um, Well, AA has really done one bang-up PR job of promoting itself since uh, its inception, particularly through Marty Mann, and they've kind of really convinced a lot of people they're the only thing that exists, not just the only way that works, but the only thing that actually exists. And lots of, I mean, lots of judges still don't really know about alternatives. They're they're, they're more familiar now than they were, but you know, but lots of judges they don't even think of anything else. So, and I would, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I would like to mention that in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Bill. Wilson, we can call him that, he's he's deceased now, uh, does mention that this is not a program for everyone. And when they allowed their archives and and people to study them from outside of the AA organization, they found that only about 2 or 3% of the people are recovered, you know, or in solid recovery one year later. And so they they know that this is a very difficult and well as they they a uses you know baffling uh, issue to deal with. No cure has been found. Even the psychiatrists and greatest researchers in the world admit that. And uh, you know I believe that at least that going along with the harm reduction uh, idea, if a person can get you know, six months, nine months, a year, or some period of time of sobriety in AA, it's better than no sobriety. And I don't, and, you know, there are many alternatives. Unfortunately, many people don't know about the alternatives because AA grew up in the in the Great Depression when a lot of people were at their wit's end, and that was the only thing in town, and they probably wouldn't have grown that fast without starting in that period of time, as Dr. Ernie Kurt says in his history of, of AA. Well, it's it's really fascinating um, when you start looking at the history. I don't know if you've ever read uh, William White's book, The Sl- Slaying the Dragon. Oh, definitely. He's interviewing me for <laughs> kind of like you. Um, he's a good friend of uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Kurt as well, and he's you know loves to do history of the you know the founding and the uh, you know the progression of different kinds of self help and you know help groups for various kinds of uh, problems, mental health, et cetera, et cetera. And he's interviewed me for more, you know, information of what happened, you know, for example, after the horrible tragedy crash in which I killed two innocent people back in 2000 and what happened to moderation management after that. Well, it's interesting. There were, uh, before Prohibition, there was quite a lot of alcohol treatment and even support groups that were around and although they were waning at the time of prohibition somewhat when prohibition the first couple of years of prohibition um it was quite successful 
Uh, it was very difficult to obtain alcohol. Uh, the treatment programs basically all shut down and disappeared. Right. It, it took a couple years for organized crime to grow up, um, you know, and make alcohol available everywhere again. And at that point, all treatment had basically dried up and withered away. And there was a complete vacuum at that point. Okay. I, I, you're much more well-versed on that and the history of that part for me. I I had a problem. My my biggest problem, I'll, to, to be honest with you, is the uh, taking the original AA program or my original moderation management program and treatmentalizing it and putting people many times against their will into treatment and then when your money is gone suddenly magically you're cured so if you if you're if you if your money lasts for 30 days the 31st day man you're cured if it lasts for 90 days you're in there 90 days if you have two and a half years worth you know that's how long and the the sad situation is that many people that have alcoholics in their family or drug users, this, they cause so much harm, they cause, you know, to the families and so much pain and sorrow. And they grab out for the only thing that they've heard of the most. And they think that only the only way to fix their loved one is to send them to AA. And, you know, that is not the case. However, I know personally many people who have done very well in AA and are living very productive, helpful lives that are full of service and try to help, you know, bring other people to, you know, a level of where they're living fulfilling and great, you know, wonderful lives where they're also helping other people, not just with recovery from alcoholism, but their general lives. Well, I never put down anybody that's uh, successfully, you know, fixed their problem. I have a lot of friends, particularly because I, I still work in needle exchange. I'm back at Lower East Side again, as a lot of people know, uh, working with the needle exchange program again. Um, and, you know, my colleagues, a number, number of them are members of Narcotics Anonymous. Um, but, you know, th there's a range of people in 12-step groups, and there are the Definitely. really they're the really rational people that say, you know, if you don't give these people clean needles, they're going to get AIDS, they're going to die, and, you know, they're going to get get AIDS and give up and say, I don't give a fuck anymore, I'm just going to shoot all the air right. I want. And they say, you know, we know that these people need to clean needles, they need to stay healthy till they're ready to make a change. And then there's other people that I encounter who are members of NA who say, Oh, you can't give people clean needles. Maybe if they hit, if they get AIDS, they'll finally hit bottom and recover. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. two very different views, and I, I, I uh, agree with you that, you know, there, you can take tough love too far. I think you could take the Al-Anon program too far, just as you could take any program too far. And there are times when helping let's say the alcoholic on the street or the, the junkie on the street to provide them, let's say, food stamps or housing or some sort of uh, whatever, um, counseling, et cetera, a place to shower, a place to get toilet paper, what, whatever they may need, a place to get mail, how to, you know, how to get back to get healthy again. I, you know, some people look at that as, you know, just let them fall all apart and then they'll reach their bottom but I look at, you know, if they're abusing the system and keep continually wanting help and when they could start, you know, doing some of these things for themselves, then they are abusing the system. But I, I believe that some of the Al-Anon and some of the uh, tough love has been taken too far, you know, where let's just kick them out on the streets, let them, let them die, you know. 
and it's it's just crazy. So, uh, you know, all extremes, which goes back to, you know, moderation management was supposed to be about balance and moderation, which um, I had a hard time with. My, I'm either totally, um, you know, I have some balance in my life or I go back and forth from workaholism to alcoholism. I, that's my switch hit, you know, that's the problem that I have always had in my life. And I'm taking a deep, you know, close look at what causes that wanting to do it all and getting four hours of sleep a night and trying to complete projects that, you know, like I'm superhuman, which I'm not, and certainly getting older (laughs) and have to recognize I have some limitations. Well, okay, that brings us back to, uh, I want to go through some of the history of this. And I know the uh, first edition from C-Sharp Press, I think that came out in 1994. I think the group was started about 92 or 93, was the original uh, MM group in Michigan? I think I think it was in 93. You know, I have uh, boxes and boxes. I, I now, when After the, the, the tragedy I caused, I, I sent a whole lot of uh, information to the people that, that took over MM. And, you know, as I went to prison, and I thought that with the founder of this program causing such a horrific uh, tragedy, that MM would simply disappear off the face of the map. And then, you know, after I had about 15 months sobriety uh, a little while back, which I did on my own without any support, I, you know, found that MM is doing just fine without me and has, has blossomed with other groups, one of which I'm sure you know of, the moderation management abstainers, taking moderation to the absolute limit of abstaining. And um, I'm real proud of the group to be able to uh, realize what Dr. Ernie Kurtz uh, predicted in the beginning, that MM would be a way, uh, a, a gateway, as you might call it, to abstinence when people discover that they can't moderate, which they're going to try anyway, you know, on their own without any program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the MM Abstainers Yahoo group that you mentioned, uh, actually, I created that because... Yeah, I was so surprised. <laughs> what a little world, huh? Yeah, one of our people on the, the main MM listserv, uh, who was in Germany, she was going by the name of Flopsy Daisy at the time, <laughs> and uh, she said, why isn't there any group for the abstainers? I want to abstain, but I don't want to go elsewhere, and I certainly don't want anything to do with AA. And I said, well, why don't you start a Yahoo group? I don't want to be the owner. And I said, okay, I'll be the owner. I'll start it. You can come in and we'll invite whoever else wants to be, whoever else is abstaining. There were several people in the main listserv that were abstaining. They decided that. said, okay, yeah, we're going to come in. Uh, We'll we'll support you. So I was just kind of... uh, since I was uh, working, uh, I was the online administrator for MM at the time, so I was just kind of the, the placeholder there to, you know, be the catalyst to get it going. But I got the abstainers to start talking to each other in this group, and they were very happy to have it. And I mean, as you said, yeah. it's still there. It's, it's, uh, it was it was very enlightening for me to find that. I don't know why I didn't think of it at the time. Obviously, as as the founder. You know, uh, through an ego problem and being the founder, uh, when I discovered that I could no longer stay within my own moderation limits, I didn't seek help from any members or was not honest with group members, except for maybe, uh, you know, occasionally. I I was honest with some family members, but I wasn't honest in a public manner that I was not able to moderate. I thought that might... um, uh, cause the, the organization to disintegrate, 
and that was just an ego problem because it certainly wouldn't have, and I, I probably wouldn't have had so many problems if I had admit, admitted that I was having problems and could have found, you know, either, you know, um, you know, doing the, at that time, I don't know if I could have gone back to moderation. That's kind of a pointless question now, but uh, now, at this point in my life, uh, one drink leads to me finding myself in a, a blackout within three days. Somehow, some way, my drinking now is, you know, there is no uh, possibility even of moderation. Okay, uh, I'm going to go back to the beginnings again. Why did you think, or why did you found moderation management? Because um, I know you had been through formal treatment at, at least one time, maybe more than once, and but you you reported binge drinking after that. Well, I. I don't, I don't know how if people can understand this. It's like a person who's going to start a diet, let's say, and they're going to start Monday, and it's Sunday night, and they don't just have one bite of cake, you know, or one Twinkie. They usually eat all they can because they're going to start tomorrow, okay, and and then you know they're going to be all good. Now, what I found is that. I did turn myself into the first treatment center. I realized that I was drinking, for example, after a date. You know, I go out on a date, drink the normal amount, then go home and drink more. So I did turn myself into a treatment center. But I found that the people in the um, treatment center, uh, the other patients, had were far worse so far as their, their resources. Mm-hmm, you know, they mm-hmm. had lived on the streets. They'd lost everything, blah, blah, blah. I didn't feel that I that I met that kind of qualifications and I felt that after that, that I perhaps had jumped to a conclusion and mis, uh, you know, mislabeled myself because I was going through what I would have called at that point a situational overdrinking. And there are people, you know, who lose a loved one, who uh, go into retirement, don't know what to do with their lives, and there's situational reasons for overdrinking. You know, as it says in the big book, there's a certain kind of heavy drinker who properly motivated can stop and or moderate. And so I believed after I started reading a lot of literature, you know, Stanton Peel and Fingerette and Miller and the Sabells and all kinds of literature that perhaps moderation was an option for me. And I met some people in Smart Recovery who were still drinking occasionally and I asked them what they thought about a moderation group. And so I started writing a little pamphlet, and you know, like maybe 20 pages mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. of my ideas of how you'd moderate. And somebody that was in that group, uh, uh, Vince Fox, who's written a book, and I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately, right now, um, he sent it off to C-Sharp Press, and they wanted to um, publish it, so I didn't have to seek publication. It came to me. And then I... Um, you know, start as much as I could write. I'd, I'd uh, mimeograph it, to take it to the coffee stores, and then I, you know, advertised in the local Ann Arbor paper that there was a program for people concerned about their drinking, and they could come in hopefully at an earlier stage before they had lost all. Like it also talks about in the big book, trying to reach younger people, and then. Um, Fanny Weinstein from the Ann Arbor, from the Detroit Press, I believe, wrote the first long article. She came to my house, and then the Associated Press got a hold of it, and then it just, you know, mushroomed completely out of hand uh, because I simply, I was just me, and I was getting thousands of letters and, you know, doing all the media. 
and I, I thought it was important. I learned finally how to get, um, actually uh, uh, one of the professionals helped me get a listserv started, you know, so people could talk online mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. also download at the group folder so they could start their own folders and it pretty much could be done, um, you know, online and then have live groups. But MM did not stress that you needed to be in this group forever at all. So there was, you know, a, a, a good attrition rate, we would consider it, because they could either go on just living their lives or go on to abstinence or, you know, after a Stanford study was done on it, they just sort of disappeared or got worse or we don't know what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't want to go too far afield, but um, they've actually found uh, a, a lot of people really do finish their, you know, their need for a group after a year or so. Mm-hmm. I was talking to the uh, someone from Women for Sobriety on here a few weeks back, and they were saying, well, a lot of people after a, a year or so, they pretty much have the program, and they really disengage from attending groups. Maybe they only do it occasionally because it's they're already living without alcohol, and it's just not a it's not an issue anymore. Yeah, and I and I understand that. I've and I've met a lot of people that uh, you know attend. It depends on how far they've fallen, but they may have you know a, you know initially they might be living on the streets, and that's the only place. And they're you know they're attending 24 hours a day practically and living it, living, breathing, whatever the whole program. And then over time, you know, as they get a job, a life, or whatever, they attend less and less. Some, you know, quit or just come back on their, you know, yearly anniversaries. Others find that they want to be an example for the newcomer who doesn't believe it's po- it, that it is possible to quit drinking. They've, for example, myself, I I thought it was not possible at, at a certain point to not drink. I had. Um, you know, dealt with every feelings, uh, the ups, the downs, the middles, the boring, whatever. I dealt with all feelings with alcohol and did not think that I could live without it, basically, or be happy without it. So some people do stick around to show an example to newcomers, and that's where a lot of them are retired or older, and they do that so that newcomers know that it is possible, you know, to to live a different kind of life. And then it's no longer about alcohol. That's only mentioned in the first step. It's more about living, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. just living, all the mundane things, you know, keeping up with the laundry and the work and the kids and the bills and how do you do all that and still stay sane and your job and find purpose and meaning in your life. And it's, you know, it, it gets kind of crazy in our fast-paced society. Well, I do the NAA. I found, I found uh, when I was, attending there, there was a very strong message that if you stopped going to meetings, you would drink and die. Yes, I've heard that as well. So, However, there's a lot of people that don't believe that. Well, we know... Unfortunately, that message, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's all kinds of AA groups, and some are much more liberal, maybe more enlightened, and um, some people have reached a stage in their drinking where it almost is true that if they don't continue to stay tight with at least people in the program, they will fall back. But there's a many people that um, live perfectly happy, sober lives without the program. Well, And I guess you have to figure out which one you are. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bill Wilson says, you know, go out. If you don't believe you're really an alcoholic that, you know, of our type and need a spiritual program, then go out and drink. It might be worth a good case of the jitters and, Try it again and see if you can do it. And that's what people do anyway. They they try to moderate and 
I guess after enough of hangovers and DUIs and losing family, friends, everything, they eventually come to the conclusion that perhaps total abstinence is, is their answer. But that doesn't mean it has to be AA. And that doesn't mm-hmm. mean it has to be lifetime AA, you know. Well, I do, I do though find, and there's some research for this, but uh, very much I think that AA sets people up if they, well, if they try to moderate, it sets them up to self-destruct. And there was quite a bit of research, including some stuff from William Miller, that said uh, the the number one predictor of who will fail with moderation is the amount of uh, exposure they have had to AA. So that's the number one predictor. The more exposure you had to AA, the more the greater your chance of failing at moderate drinking. Well, that you know, I I don't I can't relate to that particular study, but you know he is also the one that found out in in one big huge I don't know whether it was uh, National Institute of Health or NIAAA or whatever that there you know miraculously there are a number of people that do grow out of, uh, you know, super heavy drinking, which we would label maybe alcoholic, and do end up moderating. I do believe that if you are um, a person that's uh, not real strong-minded and maybe, uh, what would you, I'm trying to look for the word, take it to, you know, you're so weak that you can't think for yourself that perhaps, a lot of that drilling that, drilling that, drilling that, and listening to these same people say over and over, well, if you try to moderate, you're going to, you know, fall off and die. And and it sometimes happens. And then, of course, you know, sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes you don't hear of those people, not because they fell off and died, but because they found out they could moderate. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, you hear those slogans over and over again, one drink means one drunk. Uh, one is too many, a thousand is never enough. You you hear, and you know, people repeat them because if you want to be accepted in the group, you need to start repeating the slogans. If you don't, um, and you know, you start repeating that stuff and you start believing it. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because in the groups, some of the uh, support groups I have attended, people have unique ways of, of well, like on, on the MM abstainers, let's say, do use some of the lingo that is used in AA, but they also make, uh, really interesting and witty turns of phrases because there are parts of every program, you know, they also say in AA, take, you know, take what you want, leave the rest. And you need to know which parts to leave. I know that some people get very fearful when they get up to close to a yearly mark. And if they're just living, you know, fearful that they're going to blow it before they get their ninth year chip or something like their last week before the ninth year chip, then they're taking it too much to heart the the actual length of sobriety versus the quality of sobriety, and then they're focusing purely on not drinking rather than living, and you know that's that's the the um, the bind some people get themselves into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also so found I a, agree with that. I also found a lot of. Uh, contradictions in the AA literature. It's a lot like reading the Bible. And yes, there the, are contradictions <laughs> in the Bible like crazy and, and so and in AA is also. I, and amongst I, the people. You know, some people believe in this, some people believe in that. You know, it's it's uh like I any human organization there are going to be differences of opinion. Especially among alcoholics. We all think we're terribly unique. Mm-hmm. I know in the 12 by 12, Bill Wilson says in several several different times, the 12 steps are merely suggestions, but, right. any, but any alcoholic who fails to follow the 12 steps surely signs their own death warrant. 
So what is it, a death threat or a suggestion? They're not the same thing. Well, I, I found that also where he, at some in some areas, he says that, you know, this is a suggestion, and some people may have not reached the point where they need a, a spiritual backing that, you know, it says somewhere that you know their your last defense against the next drink may be your your uh, conscious contact with with God. That may be your last defense. But for other people that haven't reached that level, that may not. They may be able to you know just talk to a friend or you know uh, find some other do something else. Read a book, good book. Watch TV. Go out and play tennis. Do some juggling like I do. Um, so there are definitely contradictions and. I, I think somebody asked Bill Wilson why in some steps he calls it shortcomings and one step he calls it character defects. And he says, well, I just didn't want to use the same word over and over again. So, you know, he was human, you know. <laughs> well, it is very it is very much like reading the Bible, almost exactly like reading the Bible because, you know. Well, it's based on religious <laughs> concepts, you know. It's based on, it's based on you know, um, I, I I really love this Thomas Merton book, No Man Is an Island, and basically he says, and I, and I'm I'm going to read this. Unfortunately, back then, you know, they only used he and men, and they never used women in here. But he basically says, no matter how ruined man and his world may seem to be, and no matter how terrible man's despair may become, as long as he can, continues to be a man, you know, or a woman, his very humanity continues to tell him that life has a meaning. And that indeed is one reason why man tends to rebel against himself. And then it goes on to say, basically, I'm going to now paraphrase this, we all think that there's a meaning in life, and we try to find what it is for us. And if there was no meaning in life, but we all have this inherent feeling there must be, there was no meaning in life, we wouldn't have any problems at all. We could just run around and do whatever we want or just be bored to death or whatever. But trying to find, you know, some purpose and meaning for ourselves, I think, is one of, you know, it's basic to our humanity. I'm reading C.S. Lewis, too, that our, you know, our conscience, maybe given by God, kind of tells us a little bit of what's right and what's wrong. And we can become addicted to anything, you know, power, glory, how we look, how we dress, etc., so I don't, you know, I this whole addiction thing can affect just about any area of your life if you're out of balance in your life. Well, that's true because one of my biggest addictions was television, and yeah, almost almost no one ever mentions that. Especially on television, they never mention television. <laughs> <laughs> don't turn your channel now. Yeah, no, people. I, I admire you for doing that. By the way, uh, my fa- my own father, did not let us children have a TV in the family, uh, you know, until we were, I believe, like uh, nine or ten years old. There was no TV allowed because he called it the boob tube, you know, the dumbing down, mm-hmm. um, not doing anything. And you could find something, you know, you could find things educational on TV all day, all day long if you want, but you're not, you know, you got to find some time to live life as well, not just sit there in front of the TV. Mm-hmm. Or the computer. Unless you're doing something productive, of course, like, you know, saving the world or creating, you know, <laughs> something on there. Yeah, computer works much better for me. Well, I want to go back to uh, some more of the history. So um, mm-hmm. the book came out in 94. Um, so when moderation management started up, 
How was your drinking? Were you staying within limits? At first I was. Um, unfortunately, I picked the uh, <laughs> some limits, I think, developed by um, the Sabelles. No, yeah, uh, Sanchez. You, it was Canada. You picked a Canadian limit. I know for yes, women. Yes, I did. And it was and, nine uh, a week for women. And uh, no more than um, you had to have three days of, of abstinence, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, of course, being, you know, uh, who I am, I decided to have three, three different times a week. And uh, when I first started the moderation, actually, even before I started MM, I was able, after I de-labeled myself alcoholic and told my family, hey, look, I don't believe I am and I'm just going to drink. And I waited a few days and had a beer with dinner. And then I waited a while and I maybe had two beers. You know, and then I'd have a couple of glasses of wine with with dinner, whatever. And, or you know, going out to a fine restaurant, anniversary, whatever, you know, those kind of things. And I was actually able to moderate for quite a, to- quite a bit of time. And then over, you know, over time, it, uh, I would say within the first two years of, creating MM, I was definitely going over my limits. And, of course, I had a lot of excuses, you know, doing all this media, being called all the time, all these letters, all these people expecting things of me. Um, I found it more difficult at one point to, you know, to moderate than abstain. That's certainly where I am now. Um, mm-hmm. It would yeah, I... take all, all the willpower every ounce of willpower, and it seems like a total waste of time for me to have two glasses of wine. I just want to, um, you know, my drug of choice is alcohol and more alcohol. So I can't get enough once I start. And that is true for me. I know it. It's been proven too many times to myself over the last, I would say, year and a half. And then before that, I just didn't bother even stopping. I did uh, about a five-year stint of 24-7 drinking to try to get to numb the guilt of causing the, the crash. Now, I met you in Minneapolis around, I think it's 97 or 98. I was finishing up mm-hmm. my master's degree. And uh, so, you know, I had been, you know, boozing it up almost every night. Well, I was also had insomnia, depression. You know, I was doing a lot mm-hmm. of self-medication. But yeah. I said, you know, I can't finish this degree if I'm drinking this damn right. much booze. It gives it so my plan, you know, at that point was actually I was doing a harm reduction plan then because I said, you know, I'm going to get drunk one night a week at home mm-hmm. safely on Friday and then mm-hmm. abstain the other six days. And I remember I remember talking to you about that. You, you were like, well, that's not moderate drinking. That's not what we're about. <laughs> well, I was actually too strict with the rules. You know, I, I actually made them too strict, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, even normal people, once in a while, get crazy, one wild, and dance on tables, and you know they might be, you know, like my neighbor or somebody that's 75 years old, and once in a while they get, you know, toasted. Um, so I shouldn't have had it in there that you know, you know, you, if you ever, 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 ever step over these lines, you know, you need to go straight to AA or an abstinence program. Yeah, and do you that, think that was my fault? Mm-hmm. Do you think that was really? Uh... Do you think that was really a problem for you personally? Because when you exceeded the limits, then you couldn't talk to people about it. Well, yeah, it was. It was. You're you're correct. That's why I said I wanted to pick the, the limits that, that France had, which was 16 drinks a week for women. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really think that we one one thing. Let's let's. I really want to point this out that 
everybody metabolizes, you know, alcohol different. We process it different. And, uh, and uh, one of the researchers told me he took two nurses out to lunch. They weigh about the same. Uh, they were both moderate drinkers. And they had the same lunch, you know, same food for lunch. And mm-hmm. then they came back. And they both had two glasses of wine. They came back and the doctor uh, drew blood and did a, you know, blood alcohol test. And one had twice the amount of alcohol in their bloodstream than the other one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Drinking the same exact amount, the same weight, blah, blah, blah. So we all process alcohol so much differently. So maybe those limits for some people uh, may be way too low and for some way too high. It depends on how you uh, function. My mom has one half a glass of wine and she is tipsy. <laughs> I mean, she's really tipsy. For me, with my tolerance level, and I do have some Indian blood in me, I mean, very, very, very small, um, I, my tolerance just goes, you know, within a couple of weeks, goes from almost nothing, you know, low tolerance like a normal person just starting out to a very, I, my tolerance just builds really, really high. So I have to have five or six or seven drinks to, you know, be really feeling uh, a glow on, getting tipsy, feeling good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Um, and, you know, this, I'm going to jump way ahead now. Um, okay. Because when I was, uh, when I was in MM, I was acting as the online director and I met quite a few people that uh, they were like me. They had been big drunks and now they were cutting down for maybe getting drunks, drunk five nights a week or seven nights a week. Now they wanted to do it two nights a week, one night a week. And I was saying, well, this is great. And, you know, I was volunteering in needle exchange too at this time. I said, this is the harm reduction model. This is what we're doing in needle exchange, you know. Right. It's much better to shoot your hair one with a clean needle than to share a dirty needle and spread AIDS around to everybody. So if right. you don't get just getting drunk two nights a week, but you know, I had uh, I kind of ran up against the administration at MM, and they said at one point, uh, "We're not about this. We are about moderate drinking and the early intervention for early stage problem drinkers." And so that's when we split off and created Hams as a separate entity. So that we could, you know, meet a lot of different people. Is that- yeah, I want to really comment on that. Um, I felt when I, I don't know what that, what that is. We'll just ignore it. Okay, I felt, you know, that because um, Vince Fox, who was my kind of my mentor when I started writing this, he he said you're you're 20 years ahead of your time. This will not be accepted. And, you know, just forget about it. It just won't be accepted. And so one of the reasons I was so careful about the limits, et cetera, not getting drunk drunk, is because I was trying to not offend the established, you know, how people normally look at, you know, the the whole AA establishment and people that have drink. Anybody with any kind of drinking problem was therefore alcoholic. And so I was trying to walk this fine line and not look like I was too out there. Hold on, I'm going to see if it's a battery quitting. Okay. Okay. No, my battery's not quitting. Okay, it quit. Um, <laughs> you, you understand? I was, I was, I was bucking the system. Mm-hmm. I did get death threats from AA. I did get, you know, whoever was in charge of large AA organizations were sending people out and, you know, uh, you know, warning people when I would be coming in and speaking in their town and try to fill the audience with people that would ask questions that would try to show that, you know, dig holes in the program, et cetera. So I wanted to not, you know, offend too much the uh, establishment. 
mm-hmm. unfortunately by doing that you know i probably didn't allow for enough of the of what happened because it happens in aa you know people go in in aa they're supposed to be totally abstinent in aa but they go in drunk and aa accepts them coming into meetings drunk they they do leave meetings and cause car crashes they you know they don't stay within their total abstinence guidelines so why should i have expected people to stay always within their total mm guidelines mhm mm-hmm. you know well, we're we're humans and sometimes we fail people fail diets you know they do really good and then dang it one day comes up and they're they're splurging so I was expecting kind of a perfectionism, which I expected in myself, and I shouldn't have had that in there. However, um, I should have stressed even more the no drinking and driving, obviously. Um, and I never did drink and drive until the very, very end. Uh, you know, you know, stress more that you make take precautions that you don't cause any harm, like you said, to other people. I mean, if you're going to kill yourself slowly through alcohol, you know that that's still not a good thing because you're still hurting your family, et cetera, et cetera. But try wh- whatever measures you need to take to not harm others through your use. And therefore, you know, if you can go from drinking a fifth a day to drinking half a fifth a day, you know, that's still progress. Mm-hmm. Or going from drinking a fifth every day to once a week. Right. Yep. <laughs> you are correct. Now, not to be too hard on MM, because I know a lot of people do fit the early stage model. I know a lot of people that I I know there, I knew there. Mm-hmm. They like the program very well. They find it's a good fit. They were early stage problem drinkers. They stay within the limits, and it's a good fit for them. But now I think with we have hams, we have smart recovery, we have MM, we have all kinds of different groups there, and people can kind of they they have a much better chance of finding something that's a good fit for them personally. Right. Yeah, and I and I think that really, you know, uh, MM really attracted uh, the higher functioning person because first of all, they wouldn't be able to get on the internet. I'm sorry, I'm using a landline that other people use so we're getting calls coming in. So, um you know, people have to be at a fairly high-functioning level to even find the program, be able to type in, you know, because a lot of it's online. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for for a full-blown alcoholic who may go through withdrawals, et cetera, you know, I do recommend, you know, you may need to go to the hospital for a while, make sure you don't go into DTs, et cetera, uh, you know, get find out what, you know, your nutrition, your, imba- you know, physical imbalances, maybe mental issues you have as well. It, it, MM can't take somebody off the street and fix them. That would need, you know, they'd need a more powerful program for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are hard, hard, there are now harm reduction interventions, though, that do aim at that. Things like wet housing that they're doing in Seattle. And, yeah, I heard about that. Mm-hmm. I've been uh, quite in contact with them, and we're going to be thinking about adapting the HAMS program for that population. Um, well, before we run out of time, because we're getting down like 15 minutes oh, now. Oh, just real quick. I just wanted to mention real quick, too, we have that here in Oregon. They're, uh, in the subsidized housing that I was in, they're now having some sus- subsidized housing where they do allow people to use illegal drugs, however, mm-hmm. not in public areas, you know, in any public areas. 
that's actually very big, but it's not very well known because the people that are doing that aren't really advertising it too much. No, because can you imagine what the you know the <laughs> you know the up you know somebody the, the well dressed guy in the nice suit that's a yuppie and you know thinks what are you doing? What are you talking about letting these people use drugs? You got to be crazy. Well, that's actually last week's show. If people want to go to the archive and listen, uh, we talked to the uh, head of the Supportive Housing Association for the state of Illinois, and mm-hmm. there are like a hundred providers or so, something like that, in Illinois that are doing a harm reduction housing model. But, wow! Yeah, it's uh, there's uh, another one in uh, New York State. But they call it supportive housing. They don't call it. They're, they're careful not to call it harm reduction housing or other okay, controversial okay. terms. Yeah, because yeah, harm reduction got a bad name. Okay, so they're calling it supportive housing. I'm writing a note down. Okay, supportive housing. Yeah, they're kind of walking under the radar here. Uh, the Seattle Wet House, on the other hand, is very much uh, put themselves in the public eye because they're being yeah. studied by the University of Washington. That's great. Um, I'm glad they're getting, you know, some professional studies and see if, you know, a, a lot of times it just takes having the, the roof over the head and the, the some resources, some counseling, maybe medications, to because at first they can't just quit cold jerky they and they can't imagine a life without, you know, overusing whatever they're using, that maybe they can come to the, you know, to the point where they can, you know, uh, cut way back or d- decide to quit. Well, we've seen huge reductions. I think... Uh... The last report I saw was a might have been a thirty percent reduction or even a fifty percent reduction, um, you know, after a couple of years. And this is the whole population of everyone in the house. They're tracking everyone's consumption and averaging it down, and and it's dropped dramatically because people don't have to get drunk to pass out to sleep on the street. You know. Yeah, I think the Stanford University, when we, when I allowed them, you know, welcomed them to to study moderation management found that 30% of the people substantially reduced their drinking over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And this was not 30% reducing, but this is the overall consumption of everybody in the house. Oh, okay. uh, average together, it's down like, I think at the end of the first year it was down 30%. And I think I heard mm-hmm. it's dropped. It continues to drop. People just keep drinking less because they say, well, I have other things to do. I want to go to the yeah. library. I, have, I want to yeah. go to the library tomorrow. I want to be able to finish a book. I want to remember the movie I saw last night. I want to remember the smile on my child's face. You know, I want to remember what I did Christmas. <laughs> you know, it's nice to wake up the next day and, and remember what happened the day before, especially if it was supposed to be a happy time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, so you were getting a lot of stress by being in the media a lot. I assume that that was very stressful and a real trigger to drink. Um, yes, it, it was stressful because, you know, I, I dropped out of speech class three times in college because I would never get to the point where I would actually have to give a speech in front of a class. You know, uh, I mean, we're talking 25 people, and my first time out ever speaking was live on the Lisa program where they did have the plant and had to redo the first 15 minutes because she introduced me as, you know, this woman that has, has found a new way for alcoholics to return to drinking successfully. You know? <laughs> it was crazy. It was crazy. But I do okay on when I'm being asked questions and inter- interacting, I'm not as good as just at just giving up and giving a rehearsed speech. So when I can interact with a, with a, with people asking me questions and such as we're doing, you know, talking back and forth, I'm fine. But if I have to come up with the whole speech myself and then just deliver it, that that's much more difficult for me. But I did get 
very anxious before. And I'll tell you right after, you know, doing one of those things, uh, yeah, I had a few drinks right away as soon as I could get out of there <laughs> because it was very stressful. There's nothing I was, I was not trained to do this. I didn't know what camera to look at or, you know, this is all, you know, housewife one day and the next day you're flying off to do Oprah in 48 hours and everything, you know, was just in a short period of time. I didn't even have any right clothes to wear, you know. <laughs> Crazy. And then uh, January 2000, you uh, officially resigned from AMM. You submitted a letter of re- resignation to the listserv. Uh, Alex DeLuca still has a copy of that on his website. So your official letter of resignation. And it, what what prompted you to resign. We know you were over drinking. Was there anything specific at that point that made you decide? Well, I believe at that point the cra- I had already caused the crash. And, uh, um, um, or it might have been just before when I I actually um, drank it to a blackout, a tense blackout, and was afraid of going through DTs and, and called 911 on myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And was afraid that that would go straight to the media and wanted... I, I at that point was not using any any entity such as AAMM family any kind of support to uh, help help me with my problem of over drinking, and it was basically because I had no really good great purpose in life. I, I have to have some meaning and some purpose, and after MM was sort of running itself, I kind of lost um, direction and turned to the one thing that I you know. You know, could numb that the pain of not really having any direction in my life. And then when I, you know, as soon as I can find direction in my life and meaning, and a lot of that has to do with spirituality, I do, you know, I don't have that problem. But this, I believe, this did happen before the actual crash. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not certain at this mm -hmm. point. Uh, well, I've got the whole history. I actually wrote an article about you. So. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, great. Uh, yeah, in January, you resigned from MM, and then in March, it was the uh, fatal accident that killed two people while you were driving drunk in a blackout the uh, wrong way down the freeway. So it was yeah, two, and, that, and that, you're right. Now, that does bring my memory back that my family was involved when the 911 call came, you know, and and they knew that, uh, you know, they were trying to force me into treatment. I was only thinking then that if the founder, you know, was in this situation that MM would fall apart and there wouldn't be this option anymore. And so I was trying to protect MM, you know, from that happening. So when you resigned, that was a huge hole in your life, wasn't it? Um. Actually, at that point, I I was, you know, for other life issues that I don't want to go into detail about, you know, I could blame my drinking on anything, but I I was unhappy, totally unhappy with my life and had resorted to alcohol as as the cure to numb the pain that I was feeling from a lot of different issues um, and to protect, you know, the people that I was having problems with. I'm not going to say what was going on in my life at that time, but uh, I drank over it instead of trying to deal with it. Okay, so there was a lot of other things uh, in your life besides... Yeah, it had nothing to do with MM. It had nothing Mm -hmm, to do with mm -hmm, any of that. It had to do basically with being sort of directionless and having myself in situations that I was very uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. And then, well, we know what happened then. Uh, You uh, went to jail for four years, to prison for four years, and 
I saw you uh, talking about that. I think it was on 2020, one of those damn news shows. I can never tell them apart. Oh, I think Dateline or something. Yeah. So they were doing a follow-up, yeah. Yeah, I got my friend to let me watch their TV for that thing. <laughs> 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 you know, I don't have one around, so. Uh, yeah. So I know well, you. Well, that's, that's when the pressure came on to, uh, let's see, was this after prison now? Yeah, this is after yep, yep. prison. Mm-hmm. And Cheryl and I get together and. Um, you know, on another, just really quickly, Cheryl and I talk very often, probably three times a week or four times a week. We email each other. We're we're very close, to, actually. We have a lot of similarities that we didn't know we had, including um, you know alcoholism in both of our in the in the families. And I can't talk too much about Cheryl's story because you know I don't know how much she went public. Mm-hmm. But um, we are, are are friends, and you know this always will be between us. What happened? Um, but we also feel that we together through you know the book face to face and and the forgiveness that you know she gave me and, and my and my striving to atone for that is to get the message out about not drinking and driving mhm mm-hmm. well i know prison didn't make you abstinent but i know you are now so what happened and uh i think you pretty you told me you're doing pretty well now and pretty happy with the where you are. So tell me what happened after prison to now. Well, I, I, I went through a horrible series of um, trying to drown. You know, even though I was forgiven and wrote the book uh, that first came out in 2007 with narrative books, I still couldn't accept the forgiveness. I couldn't. I still couldn't accept internally that I had caused uh, you know you know Cheryl to lose her only daughter. Um, and the man she loved that she was, you know, trying to get back together with, and all the people that harmed, and you know, and all the people in my family and and my own children, my relationship was was destroyed, and so I pretty much became a 24/7 drinker for many many years, and then I finally got to that point where I just said I can't take it anymore. I wasn't, uh, you know, threatening suicide. I was just couldn't take it anymore, and so I did pray to God, and I just said finally I just gave up, and I actually prayed to. I call my creator and you know G-O-D God it's such a simplistic word that it's you know even just three letters that you know I prayed to the whatever mysterious thing there is out there because I know I didn't create myself I certainly would have created myself like I said tall blonde and more well endowed and um, so I I prayed this prayer the next day I woke up even though I had to shake like crazy and was watching out for DTs and the desire was totally lifted, and I just went from zero to 900 again, and within a few weeks had a writing job and was talking in front of people um, uh, who were forced to go after getting a DUI. Judges would send them to uh, organ, the organ impact panel where people you know, who get DUIs are forced to listen to these horrible stories. You know, And I started a website and republished the book, and everything was going well. And then I got, um, something happened and I got very ill and I was overworking and not taking care of, you know, my health again. I was, you know, exercise dropped, eating right dropped, everything dropped. And then I just drank and then went in and out of AA and I was, uh, you know, just, just not doing well. And so I finally removed myself from a situation which was not conducive to any kind of sobriety. And now I'm in a situation that is very conducive to sobriety and many of my the, my family members are are recovering so I'm I feel really happy about um, this new new newly looking at the big book looking at uh, 
you know, all kinds of other literature in, in a different way and applying it in a completely different way than I used to. I, you know, I study all human behavior of other people, but not myself. The patterns, the patterns exist. I mean, I can see the pattern over and over and over. I don't know why I didn't see it before. Blind, I guess. But um, now I see some some definite patterns that caused me to get in this situation, and it, it happened way before I took my first drink. So um, I'm working on basically finding uh, moderation and balance in my life, mm-hmm. while still, you know, having a purpose. And a meeting. Uh, <coughs> and there's one thing I was going to say at the beginning, but I'm going to say it now, which <laughs> is the reports of your death are greatly exaggerated. I what don't. Else? I don't know how many people I've talked to that are in AA and say, you know, that woman that tried to found that moderate drinking program, she's dead now because of it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, wow. excuse- I'm, speaking, I'm speaking from another realm to you then, I guess. <laughs> it's like, excuse me, she's my Facebook friend. Uh, <laughs> well, I might as well have died for all intents and purposes for the amount of years, I think, you know, the six, at least six years after parole that I drowned myself in alcohol. I really wasn't really a very well-functioning human being. Drinking was my whole purpose in life, just to numb everything. But now I'm I'm just so happy to be uh, you know exploring and reliving life again. It's just wonderful talking to people like you and Bill you know Bill White and uh, other people I'm finding that I'm connecting with and it's just just you know life is uh, full of surprises. It's still got its ups and its downs, darn it, you know. But uh, it isn't perfect. But I'm I'm sure learning a lot and I'm I'm amazed at the things that come out of people's mouths that just. And out of books that um, you know really teach me a lot about about life. Okay, we're going to have to finish the show now because I have at 9 p.m. I have to run our online chat for our harm reduction group. So I okay. want to thank you. I want to thank well, you for thank being you our so guest. Well, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to any other articles you get out there on the internet and speaking to you again. Oh, I have a blog on psychology today called Overcoming Addiction, so check it out. I sure will. And Thank next, you so much. Mm-hmm. Next week, our guest will be Sherry Allwood, who is she's one of the head administrators of Smart Recovery. I can't remember the official title, but we'll tell you what it is next okay, week. Okay, great. <laughs> okay, good night, everybody. Thank you very much, Ken. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.